it was in 1995 that Carl and Kathy Newton uh, moved uh, to Boone and started uh, attending uh, Alliance Bible Fellowship, they, uh, along with their two boys, uh, Josh and Ben. Uh, Josh was in the seventh grade. Ben was in the uh, fifth grade. And so they came through our uh, youth ministry, and Josh then went on to uh, attend uh, ASU and started in our college ministry. But it was during that particular time that he also served with Scott as a youth intern. Well, he left here and uh, went up to uh, Chicago where he uh, attended um, uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, which I happen to think is, if not the, uh, the best, one of the best seminaries in the country. Uh, in fact, you should know that we are in the presence of royalty today because his academic advisor was none other than Dr. D.A. Carson. He hung out in Carson's house. It was very scary. Uh, yeah. But he was really kind. He was a great guy. He was good. And I'm very <laughs> jealous. So uh, it was last year, in April of last year, 2014. Um, uh, oh, I should say that after, after that, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Josh and Diana, they, they get married while they were here, and then they went up there. Uh, he served as an intern at uh, an evangelical free church called The Orchard in uh, uh, Barrington. And and uh, then for the, last, for the first three years, and then he was uh, been a, the, the uh, student ministries pastor for about four years uh, now. Well, I saw him last year. We attended a conference together, a big pastor's conference up in Louisville called uh, uh, Together for the Gospel. And, and I, I saw Josh. I said, hey, Josh, when are you going to come preach for us? And he said, really? I, I can come preach at Alliance? And I said, yeah. <laughs> and he said, when? And I said, pick a Sunday in 2015. And of course, Scott Burns was standing there and said, pick Easter. And I said, No. <laughs> You can't have Easter. But he picked this particular um, Sunday. And so for a year and a half, I have been waiting for this particular um, Sunday for Josh to come and share God's word with us. I was in the first service. I told the staff that Josh was coming, and they said, have you heard him preach? I said, nope. <coughs> and uh, and uh, so it was a little bit of a risk. Uh, but I knew this guy. And I knew, <laughs> no, no, and I knew that it would be good. And then I sat through first service, and I was right. It is really good. And you're going to be deeply encouraged and challenged uh, by God's word. So would you give uh, Josh, one of our own, a warm welcome as he uh, shares with us. Well, thank you guys. It is a joy and a pleasure to be here this Sunday morning here at Alliance. This is uh, by far what I would consider my church home. I grew up here. Uh, and really, I, I learned to love the Bible through the preaching and teaching here at Alliance in youth group and in the service. And so I am very grateful uh, for this church and just so excited to see that, it, that, that Alliance is growing and thriving and uh, it, it's an honor to be here. So uh, I'm going to pray and then we're just going to get started. So Father God, Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We are so thankful uh, for your word and for your gospel, Lord. We're thankful that we can gather together and study it together, Lord. Lord, thank you for churches like Alliance Bible Fellowship, where uh, they take your word seriously, Lord. Lord, we pray that we would be uh, encouraged, that we would be challenged, that we would be nourished, uh, Lord, and that you would rescue maybe even some uh, today. We love you, Lord. Amen. Well, her name was Mrs. Hanks, and she lived across the street from my family when we lived in Rockville, Maryland, many, many years ago. And she was the source of endless entertainment for my brother and me. You see, she was that neighbor. You might have one similar. She's kind of a little off, a little crazy. She was that one who would yell at us kids when we ventured too close to her yard, which as kids do, because she did that, we would 
do that often, you know. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but, but she was also a little weird and eccentric, and there were times when she would, uh, I guess things would break in her house, and she'd get mad at them, so she would throw them in her mailbox. I remember seeing a vacuum in her mailbox, and she would decorate it with telephones and all kinds of fun things. Uh, but yeah, so she was just a little, you know, there was something off about her. Uh, but it was never a dull moment when we saw her outside. And my brother and I, we relished every opportunity to witness her shenanigans. But one day, things got a little too real with our neighbors. You see, I remember that day very clearly. My brother and I were outside with a bunch of neighborhood kids. We were playing some Nerf gun battle thingamajiggy. We were running around playing, and all of a sudden, we saw Mrs. Hanks's brother, or not brother, her son, uh, come outside and, and walk down his driveway, and he had a gas can in his hand and a cigarette dangling from his mouth. Now, as you can imagine, our game was instantly put on hold as we had something much more exciting to pay attention to. And then he poured the gasoline that he had in his hand onto the driveway, lit a match, and threw it onto the pile at the bottom of on the bottom of the driveway, and, and, and that erupted into a fireball of fire and smoke. And it was pretty exciting for us boys until we saw the piece of paper that he had in his hand, and he pointed at us and started screaming. He's like, this is the list of all of the people's houses I'm going to burn down. And our name was on there. Now, of course, things between this family and mine only intensified from, from that time on. The shenanigans that Mrs. Hanks uh, did and her son did were no longer fun. They were no longer funny. And, and there were many calls to the police back and forth, many instances that were downright scary. Uh, and then I awoke, uh, the, the culmination of this, so I awoke one morning, and there was a police officer sitting at the kitchen table with uh, my parents. You see, Mrs. Hanks had pressed charges against my dad for assault because she broke into our house at 4 a.m. And my dad, in an effort to protect his family, pushed her out the door. Now, after this, my parents, of course, told us to keep our distance, and we did. And she sort of faded from our memory because we didn't see her for many years. But I'll never forget our last encounter we were all in the car coming home from some sort of event, and we saw her wandering down the street many blocks from home. And she had this confused and terrified look on her face. And what sticks to me, even to this day, is the memory of what my dad did next. You see, he stopped the car and got out. He went over to Miss Hanks and talked to her, and I couldn't even imagine what he was saying. But then I saw him put his arm around her and comfort her. He then led her to our car, eased her into the passenger side seat and drove her home, walked her into the house, laid her on the couch and called her family and stayed with her until someone was there to take care of her. You see, what we didn't know at the time was Mrs. Hanks had had a stroke and she had wandered away from home, gotten lost and freaked out. And my dad's kindness was her saving grace that day. So why do I tell you this story? <clears throat> Simply because it stuck with me for all these years. Despite the pain, hardship, frustration, time, and money that this woman caused our family, my dad, who loves the Lord with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength, 
stop to help our family's enemy in her time of need. My dad displayed for me what it looks like to love one's neighbor as yourself. And as a boy, I wondered, why would he do it? Why would he show her such compassion? Why would he help this woman who was so mean to us for so long? Why? Well, simply because my dad loves Jesus. And he takes Jesus' commands very seriously. You see, living out our faith is a powerful witness to the ones we love and to those who observe us loving. And today, we're going to dig into a parable that should be familiar to all of us here in Boone, especially with Samaritan's Purse so close by. We're going to look at the parable of the Good Samaritan. So if you would, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 10, 25 through 37, and keep your Bibles open. We're going to be there the whole time today. So Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. And if you don't have your Bible, it's up on the screen. Luke 10, verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Then he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place where he saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Now, to organize our thoughts today, we're going to start with the parable and work our way out. If you're taking notes, you, you can maybe split your notes into these three thoughts. First, we're going to see the law displayed within the parable. Then we're going to take a look at the context and look and see uh, the lawyer exposed. And then finally, we're going to look at Jesus and see the law fulfilled. And what I love about this parable is Jesus doesn't merely tell us who our neighbor is. He shows us who our neighbor is and displays how followers of Christ are to live out loving one's neighbor. So in this parable, we see the law displayed. Love your neighbor as yourself. And the parable really starts off with a man, a man we know nothing about. We don't know his race, we don't know his social status, his tax bracket, his character, his religion, his profession, or even where he is from. He might be a good guy, 
He might just be an average Joe or an evil man. We don't know. The passage doesn't tell us. All we know is that he has found himself in a terrible mess. He's been taken by a bunch of bandits, beaten to a pulp, stripped naked, and all of his possessions have been taken from him, and he's been left on the side of the road to die. This man is utterly helpless and hopeless, and there's no way that he can save himself. The only chance that he has, the only way that he'll make it out of this situation alive is if someone will stop to help him. You see, he's totally dependent on the kindness of others to even have a fighting chance. And right here in the introduction, Jesus shows us right away who our neighbor is. Our neighbor is simply the person in need that God has put in our path. Not just our friends, not just our coworkers, not just those who look like us, act like us, not just our church family. Those, of course, are our neighbors because they're within our path. But, it is, but, but Jesus has a much grander view here of who our neighbor is. And then we see three men. Three men encounter this man. And I hope you, you see here the, something that's really cool. We see the words, then by chance. And I hope you hear the tender mercies of God in these simple three words. Does anything ever happen by chance? Was it luck that brought these three men to pass before the scene? When you encounter these three words in the Bible and, you ha and when you happenstance on something in your own life, know this, nothing ever happens by chance. When you... Uh, whenever you see these words and are, and are tempted to say, you know, wait a minute, God, could this be? Could this have happened by chance? God, you must have ordained this to happen. Absolutely. You see, because this is God putting someone in your way. So by chance, three men encounter this bloody mess on the side of the road. Three men have the opportunity to help. Three men who could choose to do good to their neighbor, yet only one stops. Now, what marks each of these men? Why are the first two so ready to cross over to the other side uh, of the road and really pretend like they don't see anything? And why is the third so willing to stop and help? What do you do when you encounter something similar? I, I, I think it would be helpful here to consider why the first two failed because I think in their excuses, we might hear some of our own. You see, I think that they may have had some really good reasons to not love their neighbor in this instance. And, and at least in their minds, they would have been justified. And even us looking at the situation might have think it was reasonable for them not to stop because of what they thought. Because, because maybe they thought, you know, they might have come up to this man and thought, this man on the side of the road was probably, he probably only got what he deserved, you know? He must have been a no, up to no good to find himself in this state. He was probably a good-for-nothing scoundrel. Why else would he find himself here? Maybe he was taken, double-crossed in a robbery gone wrong. I know he's probably just a common criminal, and he's getting what he deserves. What if this is God's punishment for something that he has done in his past. And who am I to stand 
in the way of God's justice. That could have been one thought. Or maybe, maybe they looked at him and thought, maybe they were just afraid. Oh my gosh, this road is not safe. There are bandits around. Praise the Lord, I didn't come earlier, or this man could have been me. If I stop and help him, what if those guys are still around? They could take me out. I'm weak. There's no way I could possibly defend myself. If I stop here and the robbers get me, who will help me? It would be no good for this one man in a ditch to become two. Or it's possible they even thought that, that if they helped, their intentions would be uh, misunderstood. You know, maybe the next guy coming would think that they were the one who caused this injury and they would be blamed for something they didn't do. Or maybe they heard the footsteps of the guy behind them. Maybe they heard, oh, praise the Lord, someone else who's better equipped is coming behind me. I'm only a priest. I'm only a Levite. The next guy, he's got to be a doctor or something. And it's also possible that they looked at this man with despair and thought, what can I even do? I don't know how to bind this guy's wounds. This guy's already half dead. There's no way what I do could even make a difference. He's only going to die. Why should I even bother? Friend, there are so many good reasons to look the other way. And it's so tempting to pretend that we do not see the need that's in front of us. So tempting to deny the compassion that we should give if we truly took God's word seriously and desire to do what he commanded, love our neighbor as ourselves. And here I do have to make a confession. This is one of those things, as I prepared this message, I actually came up with three pages of excuses. They were really good excuses. And in that, the Lord really convicted me. I'm really good at making excuses of why I shouldn't help. And he's working on me with that. And I hope he does the same for you. So we won't go with any more excuses. We'll keep going. Because then we see the good Samaritan come by. And he's the one who models for us what it truly looks like to love one's neighbor as ourselves. And there are five things I think we can see here that the Good Samaritan does that we, uh, as followers of Jesus, should model. Five actions the Good Samaritan does that you and I can do to love our neighbors as ourselves. And they're simply this. He looks, he stops, he gives, he heals, and he risks. The first thing the Good Samaritan does is he looks. His eyes are open as he walks along on his journey. In verse 33, notice that he sees the man in need and has compassion on him. This may seem obvious, but I think it's super important. To even be able to love one's neighbor, our eyes must be open. It's easy for us to keep our heads down, to avert our eyes, to stay in our own little bubble and think that there is no one in need around us. Maybe you do not see the needs of your neighbors because you're not looking. Or, or I think the opposite might be true even, that we, we look almost too broadly out and we see all the need is that's out there and we think there's no way I could help everybody, so why even bother? And when we do that, we fail to see what we can do in front of us. When you open your eyes and truly look around at those who are around you, I'm confident that the Lord God will help you see the person in your path, who by chance God has placed there for you. And by chance, you might be that person saving grace, and by chance, the Lord might use you to bring salvation 
to a hurting soul. And shouldn't this be something that we are all excited about? Because when we see a person in need in our path, we see that God has entrusted us with being part of the healing of some soul. I'd encourage you to be bold this week and to pray that God would open, the, open your eyes and help you see those who are broken, those who are hurting, and those who are lost around you, that you might be able to help. So the first thing he does is he looks. The second thing the Good Samaritan does is he stops. He is ready to interrupt his day to care for the needs of another. In verse 34, we simply see the words that the Good Samaritan went to him. When he sees the need, he doesn't keep going. He doesn't look to see if someone else will do it. He immediately stops and goes over to where the man is to help. And the truth of the matter is, caring for others, doesn't it often? It, it takes time. Time that we really don't have. I know that time is a very precious commodity and something that all of us are only allotted a certain amount of. Our life is but a vapor. We are here one minute and gone the next. And you see, the call to love one's neighbor hardly comes at the ideal time. It often comes at times when we're busy, times when we're tired, times when we should be on our way to somewhere else. But friends, when are you not busy? When are you not tired? When do you not have somewhere else you need to be? Loving your neighbor takes time, and it requires you to stop long enough to see what you can do. But praise the Lord for the people God entrusts in our path to help. So we see that he looks, he stops. The third thing he does is he gives. The good Samaritan gives. He uses what he has to help the person in need. As we continue on in verses 34 and 35, we see all the things the good Samaritan gives. And notice that he gives these things without any expectation of wanting to get anything in return. Because remember, he has no idea who this man is and if he can even repay him. And look at what he gives. First off, he gives his possessions. He, he takes the oil and uh, the oil and the wine and cleans this guy's wounds. These were no small expenses in the ancient world. He also gives his comfort. You see, he takes, lifts that man and puts him on his donkey. A much more comfortable place for that man to be letting, uh, letting the man stay on the, cam or on the donkey while he walks beside. Again, he also gives his time. Surely carrying a man uh, on the road who's injured would have slowed down his journey. And he also gives his money as he goes to the inn and, and pays the innkeeper and promises uh, to pay him more when he comes back. The Lord has entrusted you with everything that you have, every gift, every talent, every possession, every opportunity you have has been given to you by the Lord. When we remember this, it's so much easier to hold our hands open, to hold the things that we have loosely. You see, you may have worked very hard to gain the possessions that you have. You may have spent many hours to hone the skills that you possess. But remember this, the, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. That includes you, that includes me, and everything that we have. How can you give back to God what he has entrusted to you with the service of others this week.
So he looks, he stops, he gives. <clears throat> the fourth thing he does is he heals. He gets his hands dirty and reaches in to the messiness to bind this man's wounds. The Good Samaritan in verse 34, notice he, he shows... Uh, he shows up and he binds this man's wounds. There would have been no sterile way to do this on the road. No doubt the man on the side of the road was gross. But that didn't stop the good Samaritan from doing what he could to save this man's life, even if it meant getting blood on his tunic. Loving one's neighbor often requires us to get our hands dirty. It requires us to deal with the messiness of life. Now, what healing salve do you have that, you, that could be really the salvation to another soul who's broken and busted? What message of hope could you give this week to the person who's in need of a boost of spirit? What gospel conversation might uh, be started this week because you reached in to bind the wounds of one of your neighbors? Healing is often messy, but it's worth it. So he looks, he stops, he gives, he heals, and finally he risks. He pays the price and opens himself up to be taken advantage of. If you notice in verse 35, we see at the end of the parable that he take, took out uh, that money and promises the innkeeper that he'll be back and pay the tab in full. You see, this ensures that the man who is beaten and, and broken will not only survive this ordeal, but he'll come out of it not a slave. You see, this busted man has nothing left, no clothes, no wallet, no way to pay after a, long th after a lengthy recovery. And, he, uh, and if he was not able to pay, he would have to sell himself to the innkeeper to repay his debt. This is how people got into slavery back in the ancient day. By promising to pay the debt, the Samaritan rescues this man, but more than that, he opens himself up to be taken, to really tremendous risk, because he can be taken, be taken, he can be taken advantage of. You see, the innkeeper can say, oh, I did this, and I did this, and I did this, when really he didn't. We don't know what the innkeeper did, and he is risking a lot by saying he will come back and pay that which is owed. The loving one's neighbor is risky. There is a risk of being taken advantage of by somebody uh, who's pretending to be injured, a risk of being rejected by somebody who really doesn't want your help, a risk of that person becoming dependent on you because they know the kindness of your care. I think we need to be wise, but we also have to be okay with, uh, with really knowing that loving people can often blow up in our face. Because... The reward is so worth it when we see lives changed. And friend, what thing do you have of value in your life that did not include some sort of risk? Often risk is right, especially when it's spent, and when it's spent caring for and loving one's neighbor in need. Now, this is what it looks like to be a good neighbor. This is what it looks like to love one's Neighbor, And I have to tell you, as a Christian, I have found this story incredibly helpful in seeing what I need to do to live out the commands of God. And I hope you have as well, and you're seeing that as well. Because we here at Alliance Bible Fellowship, we take God's law very seriously, right? 
We do that because Jesus takes God's law seriously. But I want to suggest to you that there's something more to this story than meets the eye. You see, this parable was told as more than just a how-to guide to love one's neighbor. Jesus is telling the story of the Good Samaritan to illustrate a point. Remember, the parable is told to a lawyer. Remember him? He's the one who's trying to trick Jesus and trying to justify himself. The story exposes the heart of the lawyer, and I believe it condemns him in his tracks. And my fear is, if we're not careful, we could miss the whole point of why Jesus tells this parable. Jesus tells this parable mainly to illustrate how far away the lawyer is from salvation. And might I suggest how far away from salvation you are too if you are looking to this parable as a guide on how to save yourself. So let's expand our scope and look at the context that surrounds this parable and turn our eyes to the lawyer who Jesus is talking to. Read again with me, verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to him, uh, stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he, Jesus, said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied with the parable. You see, in these verses, we see the lawyer exposed. There are three things the lawyer does that should be a warning to us all. And the first is this, it's up on the screen. The lawyer knows his Bible, but misses the point. See, first off, I think we must commend the lawyer for his excellent knowledge of Scripture. We see in, these, in verse 27 that he knows his Bible well. He's able to quote it to Jesus, and he's even able to synthesize the whole intent of the Old Testament with two verses. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And even Jesus, if you remember, he even used those two verses as well to summarize the whole uh, Old Testament law. But even with his excellent Bible knowledge, the lawyer misses the point entirely. He misses the, the purpose of the law. Yes, it's, it's a guide provided to show us what God expects of his children, but it's also there to expose sin, to show us where we do not measure up to the standard that God has set and to reveal to us that we cannot save ourselves by our own actions. This is why there was the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. And this is why there was a, a, a spotless lamb and a scapegoat. And this is why Jesus came. All the Old Testament points forward to Jesus, the one who would take away the sin of the world by living the perfect life, taking our sin on his shoulders, suffering the wrath of God in our place, and dying on, our, on the cross so that we might live. And here's what we all need to remember <clears throat> knowledge of the Bible does not save us. Only Jesus saves us. Memorizing scripture is important. Knowing the Bible is important. Reading your Bible daily is important. But what this passage indicates is, is knowledge alone does not save you. Only Jesus saves you. And remember, even the devil 
has an excellent knowledge of scripture and he will be cast into the fires of hell. So first we see the lawyer knows his Bible but misses the point. The second thing he does is he asks a question but really doesn't care about the answer. Verse 25 illustrates this and shows us that he comes to Jesus with a very good question but with very bad intent. What shall I do to inherit, uh, to inherit eternal life, he asks. And his motives are given away by his desire, by the desire of his heart to put Jesus to the test. He doesn't really want to hear what Jesus has to say. He wants to, to, to put Jesus to open shame, to catch him with his pants down, uh, to trip Jesus up. Is it possible that you and I sometimes do the same? Do you come to God's word with your answer already in mind? Do you want God to line up with your preconceived notions of who you think he is or who you think he should be? There's no way I could believe in a God who's X, Y, or Z. Do you try to fit God into a box, the box that you made for him? Or do you come to him honestly, like I hope all of you here do? Do you come to him honestly, seeking to see who he really is by reading his word and seeing who he describes himself to be? My hope is, is that, that that's all of you here. And my hope is, is that, you, that you do not that you do not know, uh, that you would know who he is based on who he says he is. And what I love about Jesus here especially is that he doesn't condemn, uh, he doesn't condemn uh, this lawyer automatically right away. He redirects him with follow-up questions and this story to really shine a spotlight on the man's heart. And maybe Jesus is doing the same for you today. <clears throat> You see, the third thing that, the, that exposes the lawyer is he's really here to seek to justify himself. Verse 29, the lawyer exposes himself. You see, the lawyer doesn't really love God. He loves himself. He wants to glorify himself. He wants to justify himself. He wants to earn an inheritance that can only be given. And he tries to find a loophole in the law, the way around the call to love one's neighbor by clarifying who his neighbor really is. For surely... There's an exception to the rule, right, Jesus? I don't have to love everyone I encounter, do I? In seeking to justify himself, the lawyer stands condemned. And I wonder what happened to his face as he listened to this parable. No doubt, as he stood there and put the pieces together, he started to realize what Jesus was doing. Jesus shared with him what he must do to inherit eternal life. He must follow the law perfectly, love God perfectly, love his neighbor perfectly. Go, do this, and you will be saved. And I'm certain when he heard those words, his face fell and his heart sank. Who can do what the Lord expects? And is it possible that in coming to church, in looking in this passage, your desire is the same as that lawyer's? Are you looking for a checklist you can put up on the wall of all the good deeds you need to do to be acceptable before God? Are you looking to create a list of all the things that you can give to Jesus when you stand before him on that last day and to make sure that you are good enough? My friend, hear me. See Jesus and know there is no way that list could ever be long enough. No number of check marks it would take. On our best days, we live out this parable well. But oh, how many times have we failed? And this parable 
would be terrible news for the lawyer, and it would be terrible news for us if it was the only way we could inherit eternal life by following God's law perfectly. But praise God for the gospel and the one who is telling the story. This is the third point. Real quick, <clears throat> we see the law fulfilled, and we see here that only Jesus saves. Before we close, I, I want to offer up this final thought. The final thought is just simply this. Look at who's telling the story. It's Jesus. Jesus, who's telling the story really in the shadow of the cross. You see, a chapter earlier in Luke, uh, Luke tells us that Jesus had turned his face to Jerusalem. And we all know that he's headed to the cross, headed to Calvary, where he will die for the sins of mankind. And I cannot wonder if Jesus meant for us to put the pieces together and make another connection here as well. You see, it's so easy to look at this parable and desire to be like the Good Samaritan. It's so easy to look at this parable and desire to not be like those two who pass by on the other side. But guys, as I've read this passage, as I've meditated on it, as I've studied it, as I have just dwelled and wrestled in it and looked at my life and the story of my own salvation, I realize that the person I can relate to the most in this passage is that man in the ditch. And where he was there by no fault of his own, I had been placed there by my own accord. My sin had beaten me to a pulp, messed me up bad, and left me to die by the side of the road with no way to save myself. And I would have perished there if it were not for someone coming to rescue me. And Jesus, Jesus, he saw my state. Jesus, he stopped and he put on flesh. Jesus, he gave his life a ransom for many. Jesus healed me with his wounds and Jesus risked it all, knowing that not everyone who hears the good news would turn to him in faith and be saved. But he did it anyway. He went to the cross for you and for me. Friend, you do not need to save yourself. In fact, you cannot. Only Jesus can save you. So if you're here today and you realize maybe for the first time that you yourself are that man in the ditch, cry out to the Lord, put your faith in him, and he will rescue you. And if you've experienced the joy of being rescued by the ultimate good Samaritan, be like him. Go and do likewise because of what he has done. Look, stop, give, heal, risk it all for Jesus and for the gospel. Pray with me, guys. Father God, we are so thankful for your word, and we are so thankful for the gospel, Lord. Lord, we realize that this story is one that we know well, one that uh, inspires us to, to really love our neighbors well, but Lord, help us to see in it the fact that we cannot save ourselves. Lord, Lord, for those who don't know you, I pray that they would put their faith in you today. Lord, and Lord, for those who do know you, for those who do love you, Lord, I pray that we would go out from here and be challenged knowing that we can bring the gospel, the only thing that saves to those who are perishing on the side of the road. We love you, Lord. Amen.